Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 57. Episode 57, The Power of Storytelling and Play, with our special guest, Marketing Director and Entrepreneur, Drew Vernon. Drew is the Marketing Director for Tony's, where he leads Tony's for Teachers, partnering with schools, museums, and libraries to promote screen-free education for children. His work contributed to Tony's being named as one of the Fast Company's 2021 Most Innovative Companies in the Education category. Prior to Tony's, Drew led the U.S. preschool business for Lego. Here he created Prescription for Play, building a network of 2,500 pediatricians to promote daily play between parents and children. This program has become one of Lego's key global social responsibility initiatives. Drew is also an entrepreneur, and he started Connecticut's first state-licensed pay-by-the-hour daycare center. How brilliant is that? Before transitioning into early childhood education, Drew spent five years in beauty consumer packaged goods, where he worked for P&G and Juergens. Drew has an MBA in brand and product management from the University of Wisconsin, where he was recognized recently as one of the eight to watch under 40. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Drew Vernon. Welcome, Drew. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. What fun. So we're gonna, you're all about play. So this is going to play in education and creativity and all those, all those good things for our brain and for our body. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, play is such an important part of our lives. And it's uh, something that I, I really enjoy being a part of. It's it's not, we're talking about children today, but we're also going to talk about, you know, as you get older and into your teenage years, your, you know, your, your adult years, your grandparent years, like everywhere in your life, play is such a part of our development and to connect at that creativity level. So, Brennan, what is the genius of play? And, and please share your role here as play ambassador and why you believe, so I'm a little chunker, ask big questions, Drew, or Vernon, <laughs> and why you believe a child who is a strong player is a strong learner, a problem solver, and an overall happier person. So let's start with that genius of play. Yeah, I'm a play ambassador for the genius of play. That's part of the Toy Association, uh, which is just an initiative to, to get people out and playing and and to try not to take life too seriously. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so many positive benefits to play. Uh, one of which just being keeping the mind active and keeping the, the, the mind growing and engaged. And so that's uh, one of the reasons why play is so important and why I try to advocate for it uh, in my, my job and also in my daily life. And why do you believe then, uh, like a child is a stronger player, learner, problem solver, and overall a happier person if they're adding play into their life? 
Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, children have a lot of uh, unstructured, unstructured time, I think more so than adults. And I think that as the older we get, the busier that we get and the more filled in our schedule becomes. And so I definitely know that uh, for myself, as I got older, I kind of forgot how to play. And it wasn't until coming back to the the toy industry, you know, a few years back that I rediscovered uh, the benefits to play. And I I remembered a lot of my memories from my childhood. Um, But in short, I think play uh, helps, you know, keep our our minds engaged and alive. And it kind of takes, you know, it it helps us remember to, to all try to be children at heart. And you talk here about unstructured play that is so important. Do you mean like just go out and you want to skip on a rope or you want to throw a ball, but it's not structured like our life, you know, it's just, it's free flowing. Yeah, I guess, you know, there are many different types of play and, and I, I think um, unstructured play is one of those. That's where you have some sort of uh, an object or maybe even no object at all, just your imagination and, and you kind of mm-hmm. make it up as you go. And that's an important part of play. Uh, and, you know, more structured play or games or puzzles or things like that, you know, that's a different type of play. And I believe that all types of play have their own role and place in development uh, of a child. I think something that their imagination is powerful. I think Einstein said that imagination is more powerful than knowledge and it's the preview of life's coming attraction. I always like that, like I'm excited, like imagine you know, what you want to create in your life. And, you know, one thing I added um, that I didn't even know I had the skill of it, I was just playing, was I started improving when my husband, when his father was alive, he died last year at 104. And, um, but Cliff used to read to him every Friday. So that was kind of playful for his father. And when Cliff would read, I would listen to the words and I started improving, like walking downstairs or, you know, saluting or skipping or, and it was a lot of fun. And I thought, Hey, this is really cool. Yeah. I love improv. Uh, that's an important part of imagination. And, and I think, you know, you said imagination is more important than knowledge. I think imagination comes before knowledge, but mm-hmm. because before you can know something you, you have to, you know, you have to see see something or something that may not exist yet or something that, that could exist uh, that's the place of imagination is to take a look at the potential uh, of something and to bring it uh, into the world of reality uh, which you know then becomes knowledge and you think of improv what I've learned through improv talking to people who do stand up comic and you know improvisation is that you know it's always, the, the great thing about it is you're always supporting the other person. Like you're listening and then you, you don't take like, you know, it's raining out. No, it's not. No, you're like, Oh, and did you hear this? Like they add to the conversation. So it's a way to learn a better communication style. Yeah. It's a great skill to have. I mean, just in regular conversation or just in different projects that you take on or the, the ability to, to improv, it's the, the whole notion of yes. And, you know, you yes. don't want to shut something down. You want to just kind of go with it. And it, it's a, a skill that you have to cultivate, but it's also a mindset where if you say, you know, whatever's presented to me, I'm going to build upon it. I'm going to try to add something and then I'm going to, you know, kick it back over to the other person. Uh, that's where the, the juices start flowing as they say. And that's uh, really kind of a breeding ground for creativity. I love that. What you said building on it and yes. And 
Yeah, I love that. But, you know, the opportunity you had to work at Lego, that must have been very, very exciting. Like Lego toys, you know, we've all had Lego in our, if we've had children, we, I'm pretty sure we've all had it in our house. We still have boxes of it from our son, even if he's a lot older. But uh, tell us about that experience here and, and this managing of the U.S. preschool business. Sure. Uh, yeah. So Lego has been a part of so many of our lives. Uh, it's, you know, been around, uh, I believe, since the 1930s. And so we're all familiar with it. Uh, I definitely grew up playing with Lego. I still remember the first set that I received. It was Christmas of 1989. It was uh, a Robin Hood set. It was a little castle of Robin Hood and his merry men. And I ended up, you know, loving Lego as a child. And, and I had several different sets growing up. And then I got into my teen years. And um, I put them, you know, to the side, or I might've sold some at a garage sale. I can't quite remember, but, uh, it was having the opportunity to come back to Lego, uh, as a marketer, um, having gone through business school and, and spent some time in, in beauty consumer packaged goods. Uh, that's really kind of what reawakened my childhood is coming back, uh, as a marketer, like I said, uh, to, to take um, a job at Lego and to run the preschool business uh, was really an amazing opportunity and something that, that has kind of reignited my passion for childhood and uh, improving the childhood experience. Mm-hmm. I didn't know 1930s. Um, I, was, I was born in 1959, and I, I don't remember ever having, for me, any, <laughs> any, <laughs> any Lego. I, I did have little, like, my brother, my older brother, and myself, not my middle brother, we used to have little dinky cars and I've always liked cars. So I played with things like that. And yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's originally a Danish company. It started out uh, actually selling wooden toys. Ah. Uh, and uh, then I believe in the 1950s, uh, they started, uh, they, they made a, uh, I think they saw like a, a plastic injection mold at, at a fair. And that's what got them into the, the pra- plastic bricks that we know and love. And, and then we, uh, they ended up coming to the United States, I think in the seventies. So history isn't quite as long in, in, in the States or in uh, Canada, but, uh, but uh, it's definitely been around for several def- decades here. Yes. Yes. So how did you come up with the idea of creating this prescription for play? You know, what is that first of all, if you can share with our listeners and, and as we said in the intro, it became Lego's key global social responsibility initiative. Tell us about that, that, that whole name, even prescription for play. Yeah, so it, it was interesting. So I was working on the preschool business, and for those who may not be familiar, that there's two systems of play in Lego. There's the the little tiny bricks. Um, it's called the Lego system. And then there's actually a system that has bigger bricks called Duplo, and that was the the brand that I was managing. It was the Duplo bricks, and this was something that you know children as young as 18 months would start to play with. And uh, start to develop their, you know, their cognitive skills, their their fine and gross motor skills, and I was taking a look at at uh, how children became acquainted with Duplo bricks, and I I thought, you know, there's really an opportunity to in, integrate Duplo play starting at 18 months, and, and I thought, you know, every 18 month old, at least in the United States, I can't speak uh, for Canada, but 18 months that's kind of like a milestone in childhood development where you'll you'll go into the pediatrician's office and you'll measure how they're growing and developing. They'll take your height and your weight. And I thought, Hey, this might be a good time to promote play, not just for the child, but uh, parent child co-play. 
And so what I did is I created uh, the program and called it prescription for play to really indicate, you know, we give prescriptions to people, which you usually a bottle of pills or something like that, but you could really give your child a prescription to play uh, to take it that seriously to say, Hey, this is actually something you need to do every single day and not just for the child, but the parents need to be playing with their child. And so uh, through some research, I found that, you know, if parents who spend 15 minutes a day playing with their child can actually accelerate that child's development, their social skills, their cognitive skills, and their fine motor skills. So we created a little prescription card. And when the children would come into the office at 18 months with their parent, the pediatricians would hand them this card, um, this prescription prescription card, uh, as long, uh, along with a product sample, and they would encourage the parents to play with their children. And, and what I didn't expect, you know, I, I was planning to do this in, you know, maybe a hundred doctor's offices, just as a little pilot program. Um, but just the, the power of the program kind of took over. And before I knew it within a matter of weeks, uh, the network had grown to over 2,500 pediatricians, uh, because they all saw the benefits of, uh, code, uh, co-play and uh, they really resonated and wanted to be a part of the program. Wow. Just in a few weeks. That's, that's, that's amazing. So it really is the power. <laughs> now you have three beautiful children and of course your beautiful wife. How, how do you fit in play every day with your three children? My children are different ages and stages and each one kind of has different personalities as, as they all do. So my oldest is 12 uh, my middle uh, son is nine and then my youngest daughter is six. And so, you know, I have tried to put a focus on play in, in different ways. So uh, one example is, you know, during the pandemic, uh, my daughter, who's six at the time was four, uh, her school got canceled. She was going to preschool every day and um, uh, I was working from home and I decided, hey, this might be a good time just to spend this time with my daughter. And we actually started a podcast. Mm -hmm. and we called it Childhood. Uh, and it's designed just to talk about childhood, uh, me being a former child and her being a current child. And uh, we really started to implement, you know, this idea of storytelling and even improv. Uh, so, you know, it's, now that we're, you know, several dozen episodes in, it, it's a lot of fun to go back and uh, experience kind of the play sessions that I have had with my daughter and developing her storytelling and improvisation skills. Wow, what a gift. And how exciting is that? that you, your daughter must just be like over the charts with that. <laughs> it's funny because uh, you can actually see, you know, over the course of two years, uh, she's grown and developed. And, and I would uh, argue that, you know, she's a better storyteller at this point than my older children. And it's simply through that repetition of mm. going through that experience, you know, I've taught her different elements of storytelling. You know, most stories will boil down to a hero who overcomes a challenge. Uh, to get to a treasure or some sort of end goal. Um, she's, uh, I've drilled that framework into her. I, I've uh, peppered in a couple other elements of, you know, surprise or plot twists or things like that. And so even at, you know, age five or six, she's starting to integrate these into her storytelling and she's become, you know, somebody who, you know, ask her to tell you a story and she can just go off the cuff um, because of the practice that she's had. I could see her writing books. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, I don't know what she'll end up doing. She's still very young, but I could mm -hmm. see her doing something uh, to that effect or just uh, whatever she decides to do. I think the power of storytelling, the, the ability to tell compelling stories is going to benefit her uh, in whatever she uh, decides to pursue. Yes. 
So what was the social emotional impact? We talked about the pandemic for you. It was good how you worked with your children, but how did the pandemic, what you've witnessed, you know, affect the child's growth and development? Yeah, this is a topic that I'm actually really passionate about. It kind of leads mm. me into to the work that I'm doing at Tony's as well, because the, the biggest impact that I've seen is the uh, the proliferation of screen use among children. So a lot of you know the the common guidelines um, that I adhered to as a parent pre-pandemic was that you know children under two shouldn't really be exposed to a lot of screen time, and children two to five should only be, uh, you know, exposed to screens for an hour a day. And I, I kind of feel like up until, you know, spring of 2020, that's what a lot of parents I knew kind of adhered to. And, and all of that out, went out the window because schools shut down. People started working from home, especially as people were trying to get childcare solutions in place. Uh, screen time went through the roof. And then we started to see schools coming back uh, as virtual. Uh, and so, you know, as part of a school experience, children were now you know, hopping on Zoom for two, three, four hours a day. Now most children are, are back to school in person, but we have uh, developed all of these, all of this curriculum is now screen-based and all of our habits are to turn to a screen. So we're seeing children who used to spend under an hour a day are now spending three, four, five, six, seven hours a day on screens between their schooling experience and their uh, recreational, you know, after school experience. Mm-hmm. I know that during the pandemic, what I was witnessing, um, Cliff and I, our background is sailing. We lived in the Bahamas for a while, way back when we met. And um, so I see families, some families that sold their huge home in Texas, places in the States, and they they took a dream where they were going to have it in the future. And they took their three, four or five children on a boat for a year and sailed and educated them. And those children excelled by being away from screen time and being outdoors and, you know, learning about the dolphins going by and that. So definitely being away from the screen all the time because it's kind of addictive. Yeah, it's very addictive. You know, there's, uh, you know, the blue light that emits, it entrances you. And the other thing is that it's a completely passive experience because usually if, if you're watching a screen, you know, things are moving, things are animated, and it's a very easy thing to sit in front of a screen and just to have a completely passive experience. And it's, it's the removal of that visual stimulus that requires action upon uh, the person. And in the case of stories or storytelling, the removal of the screen is what actually puts the creative responsibility upon the listener because they are then uh, forced to engage and, and to create an image of what's taking place rather than having it presented to them. So tell us, thank you. Tell us about, you know, the Tony's universe. What does that look like? And what really makes your product so unique from anything else that's out there? Yeah, so uh, the Tony box is kind of our flagship product. It's a five inch uh, cube. It's a a screen free speaker for kids. And uh, around the speaker is a layer of foam. And around the foam is a layer of durable fabric. So it's designed with kids in mind. Uh, it's de- designed not just to be an audio experience, but to be a tactile play experience. And it was created by a couple of dads who met on the board of a preschool together. And the reason that they created it was they saw that their children's teacher was using CD players in the classroom to play different songs and stories and different types of content. And they thought to themselves, you know, CD players are old technology at this point. They've been around for 30 years uh, or more. Uh, they scratch, they break, and most importantly, young children can't operate them without an adult. Uh, I'm talking about children, you know, ages two, three, four. 
So they created a, uh, the Tony box, which is a figure-based system. So you have these little figures that, uh, that have a magnet inside as well as a little RFID chip. And so when you place a Tony figure on the Tony box, it will download the content onto the box and it'll play whatever it's programmed to play. So anything from storybook characters to songs, um, any type of audio content, uh, we do mindfulness content, we do uh, action songs, uh, bedtime songs, uh, anything that, um, that you'd like. And so it's really this system that kind of took off uh, originally starting in Germany um, six years ago. And uh, there was pretty much overnight success in Germany. We expanded in the UK in 2018. And then I was part of the team that helped launch this into the United States in 2020. That's fantastic. Um, I used to talk about mindfulness. That is that like a meditation that's on one of the, the Tony's box? Yeah, so there's a company called Go Noodle, uh, which is in a lot of uh, classrooms in the states here. Uh, they did were doing mindfulness content, but it was all screen based. And so they came to us a couple of years ago, and, and they said, "Hey, we'd like to do this in a screen free way, where you know children can be taken through a, a guided exercise uh, in a way that doesn't distract them or overstimulate them." And so that was our first collaboration in mindfulness. Now we're uh, doing uh, other types of content as well, but it's, it's a great opportunity just again, to focus on one of your senses, uh, you know, your hearing uh, to be able to relax and uh, focus and, and really just be present. And so that uh, the Tony box is, is a great way to do that, uh, especially in a classroom setting for young children. I think many ages would enjoy that. I, I meditate slash prayer. I call it both every day. And to have that, like you said, the, the, focus on the one sense, like that's a skill that, you know, people can take into their whole life. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk around being present and being mindful. And, and I think it just goes to the fact that, you know, we're overstimulated. We're on screens all of the time. It's hard to, to multitask. I think we're learning that, you know, multitasking is, is kind of like uh, a myth, uh, because the brain really wants to be able to focus on one thing at one time. And the, the more that we're able to isolate that to a, a, a singular experience, uh, that's going to aid us in uh, being present, uh, which I think, you know, a lot of studies will show is going to lead to a more fulfilling and enriching and happy life. Yes, for sure. Talk to me about stuffed animals, <laughs> people having stuffed animals and really again, all ages. I know that when Interesting enough, when I graduated from university, people gave me at 21 <laughs> some stuffed animals, but I love them. <laughs> and I also know that it's interesting that when I was a young girl, my two older brothers and myself, my dad came home from work and he just announced, um, you know, the three of you can have anything you want. What would you like? Well, we weren't offered that before. And both of my brothers went around to the store to get the kits that you make cars and things um, out of. And I said, I wanted a Pooh Bear. And the Pooh Bear at the time was not even out on the market, but it was coming from Sears, the store, but you had to wait six to eight months. But I waited and I got my Pooh Bear and I still have brought that Pooh Bear with me all these years later. It's the one, it's one stuffed animal I've kept. <laughs> so tell me about st that, like stuffed animals for children. Where, where do you see that they're really good for children? 
Yeah. You know, uh, I, my, the first thing I remember in terms of like a toy or really even a possession that I can think of was a stuffed animal. Um, and I still remember, I still have it to this day, actually. It's, <laughs> um, it was from a, a short lived, uh, animated series called the Wuzzles. Uh, I think it aired in like the mid eighties or something like that. And the stuffed animal that I had, it was a half, uh, rhinoceros and a half, monkey and uh, <laughs> the species was was called a rhinoki and i used to take that uh, rhinoki and uh every saturday morning when the show was running i would uh i would bring it downstairs and we'd watch the show together and and that's a simple but um impactful experience for me because obviously it stuck with me for 30 plus years uh it provided provided me comfort i think you know stuffed animals have an opportunity to provide comfort and i think you know when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of things other than toys and toys are what, you know, bring your world to life and uh, what you associate with. And, and a lot of times you make emotional connections to the, the toys in your life. Yes. Well, let's segue now into things like, you know, board games and jigsaw puzzles. And why is that so important for playtime? Because many families can bring that into their, their family or set up a jigsaw puzzle where you can go to it when you, you feel so inspired. Yeah, I think, you know, that you have different types of experiences with different types of games, but I think what they do is, is they start to give structure and they, they start to teach um, steps leading to a goal. And so mm. whether you're, you're playing um, and thinking of Monopoly, that's probably uh, not the, the simplest one to start with, but even, you know, something like checkers or, or chess or um, any number of board games, uh, there's an, an objective uh, which leads to a goal. And there's also, you know, in a lot of these, there's an element of competition, uh, which, you know, can help you with motivation and, and just uh, give, give you a little bit of an extra push. But I, I think that's what it essentially does is it gives you a desired uh, objective and hopefully some steps uh, to achieve that objective, which is a great blueprint for your life and, you know, moving your way through childhood into adolescence and hopefully, you know, making your own life uh, its own kind of, um, board game of objectives and goals. That's, that's wonderful how you put that competition, motivation. I really like that. We, we've paid, played for almost 13 years with my mom, who's uh, lives with us. Um, we play Scrabble and we're all very competitive. We're not like, oh, here, give you the, you know, we're very competitive in the game. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's a lot of fun, along with Jigsaw's Puzzles. Tell me what you mean by creating prep time to play every day. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's it's hard because, you know, leisure time or what you might classify as leisure time is often the first thing to go when things get busy or when, when you have a lot of things to do. And so it really becomes a practice of saying, I believe that this is imperative for my mental health, my happiness, and it's something that I need to prioritize. And so just blocking the time and having it there, um, I think is an important first step. Uh, and then, you know, what you do with the time and, and how kind of structured you want it to be is really up to you. And I, I firmly believe that there's a role for both structured and unstructured play. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that if you go too far uh, in one or, or the other 
kind of extreme, uh, then you're kind of leaving uh, opportunity on the table. And, and so I think, you know, just going into your playtime with what you're trying to achieve, maybe you're just trying to relax, or maybe you're trying to blow off, blow off some steam. That's totally fine. Uh, other days, you might be trying to, to create something and have, you know, something come out of it that, that you can share with, with other people. So I think it's important to, to block out the time and define what the objective is um, and, and see if you're kind of tracking against that objective. Again, I think that fits into so many ages, like, you know, from young to youth, to teenagers, to adults, to seniors, you know, just that playfulness. Because they always say that when you're playing and you're, it brings out that creativity and you learn at a higher level. Is, is that what you've structured or put into your play, that creativity and, and that we're more creative if we're, we're coming from that playfulness? Like in school, if we had more play... I, in some structure, but more play, we could be more creative. Yeah, I think so. You know, my experience with creativity is that it's all about creating connections and, it, mm. and it's kind of creating dotted lines uh, to two things, two or more things that are seemingly unrelated. And what play does is it removes the, uh, I guess, the the coherence or it removes the, the rigidity of how we see the world on a daily basis, because we're all creatures of habit. We're all creatures of routine. And so oftentimes we go about our day with kind of the, the path of least resistance or doing things the way that they're always done and play releases us from that obligation because there's no one way that something has to be achieved. And that's really what opens up opportunity for creating new pathways and new connections uh, of different ideas that, can be married together in, in, in new ways. Yeah. So you, you take me to a memory when I was at university, I just mentioned this to my husband the other day, I was in, it was a humanities course and we used to meet, you could go have a coffee or tea or water, whatever you wanted to get. And we all were in a room that was more intimate. There was couches and stuff. And I guess about only 24 people maybe in that class. And the teacher really encouraged us to, to add to the conversation. And I remember one time he said something and I put my hand up and said, whatever I said, and he said, Moyer, that's very interesting. I don't know how it ties into what we were saying, but thank you for sharing. So it was that improv thing again. You know, he 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 allowed me to not be embarrassed or something, but to say thank you for sharing. So that just took me there. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it reminds me. You know, I something that I use kind of in my work is is the idea of a, like a parking lot, where you know, if you have an idea, if there's something behind something where you're not quite sure where it fits. Uh, rather than kind of put it aside or say that, you know, it's irrelevant, put it in the parking lot and I like that. See, see if you can come back to it because you might find use for it uh, as you proceed. I think that's fantastic. It's, it's sort of like doing that. What is it? The brainstorming, you know, you have an idea in the middle and you just start writing ideas and you let, you let it just flow and see how it ties in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, the, the more open you are, uh, because when you're brainstorming, you don't really want to to shut anything down. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to say no to anything, you know, going back to the, it's the idea of improv it's yes. And, and so if something doesn't quite fit. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means you haven't found a place for it yet. Mm, love that. What play ideas do you have for children who have special needs or dis disabilities? I've worked in that field. And uh, what are some ideas you have there? You know, I uh, I call myself street smart instead of book smart because uh, I have a lot of passion for childhood development. Uh, I need to kind of brush up on, on the research and take a more academic angle. But, you know, I do talk to a lot of teachers and, and I hear a, a lot of different things uh, about 
how to how to work with children with special needs. I know that um, for a lot of them, uh, routine is is a big part of it. They uh, they want to feel comfortable with what they do. So a lot of times repetition is really good. Um, the Tony box is actually a great tool for children on the spectrum. Uh, I've heard time and time again, just the ability to hold uh, a figure, uh, you know, in an increasingly digital world, this is something that's tangible and it's something that, you know, children can understand. And so to be able to put a figure on the box and to hear it play a song or a story, to be able to have that control, to, to stop it by removing it. Um, and the Tony box itself with its functionality, because there's no screen, the navigation is all done through tactile play as well. And so if you want to move to the next chapter, or the next story, you just give the Tony box like a little whack on the side. And that's something that we've heard from uh, children of special needs. Uh, they really resonate that because it, it's playful. And it's also something that puts the, the control in their own hands. And so whether it's a Tony box or different types of toys or, or stimulation, uh, that's what I would suggest It's just something that uh, is easily controlled and something that uh, can provide a routine and a repeatable experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a, a lot of work with like movement and, and connection and, and the, the children love that. And I also worked with hearing impaired children with, again, movement, kind of dance and sound through the boards that they were feeling through the vibration where we would do this movement. A lot of fun. Where do you see the toy and play trends that are happening today? And where do you think it's going in, in the future in the toy industry? What's happening there? Yeah, I think for every trend you see, you can kind of see a counter trend. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we do see uh, kids are increasingly moving to uh, digital games and video games. We see that happening, you know, as young as, you know, six or seven, but really by the time a child is eight or nine or 10, uh, for a lot of kids, the vast majority of the way they're playing is, you know, on an Xbox or on a Nintendo. And, and you know, that can be a type of play and there can be benefits to that type of play but it is adding to their screen time. And so uh, the counter trend to that is kind of the old school uh, toys, you know, the, the analog toys or, you know, wooden toys, even, you know, you see a lot of companies that are, are making, you know, what you might consider being outdated toys or um, kind of nostalgic or retro toys, but I think there's going to be an increasing need for type, those types of things. You know, we saw in the pandemic, actually, um, even though screen time was increasing, there was also, um, you know, puzzles and games and, you know, Lego bricks were also, you know, extremely popular items uh, because it was uh, a counterbalance to the, the screen time. So that's, that's where I see it going is you're going to see both kind of growing in parallel uh, because they kind of balance each other out. Mm -hmm. What do you see with um, when, it, like when I grew up, I had Barbie and Ken, and I don't think I know anybody that looked like Barbie. There's maybe some Ken's out there, <laughs> but you know, there was, it was very gender based. What's happening there with toys with today with different, you know, gender based and, and, and different ways of identifying with yourself and how, how are the toys developing in that area? Yeah, that, I mean, that could be a, its own topic. Yes. Uh, I've had a lot of discussions about that because, you know, do, do you stick to traditional kind of uh, gender roles? Do you stick to, you know, the, the, the Ken and Barbie? You know, do you make blue toys for boys? Do you make pink toys for girls? 
uh, where I come down on it all is, is it's kind of going back to improv. Yes. And, you know, there's a a certain uh, number of the population uh, who are going to see things in traditional ways. They're going to want, you know, blue nurseries for their boys and pink nurseries for their girls. And in my opinion, that's perfectly okay. It's also okay to say, I'm going to buck that trend. I'm, I'm going to do what's right for my family and I'm not going to play into, you know, uh, traditional ways. And I think that's okay too. So I think, you know, back to my prior point, there's a counterbalance to everything. You know, if you're a toy manufacturer and, and you're making, you know, um, you know, girly uh, toys for girls and, you know, manly toys for boys, you probably do all right for a while. I think what it boils down to for me is that children, when it comes to like human or humanized toys, children want to be represented and they want to have toys that, that they identify with. And so from that um, standpoint, you know, I think manufacturers uh, would do well to, to accommodate that, to, to have, you know, a diverse and representative um, assortment um, where every kid has uh, something that they can identify with and that represents them. Mm -hmm. That's a really good answer. (laughs) Can you share some of the studies and research that, you know, that are really showing this importance of play in our lives and and how does it really enhance our memory, creativity, and self-confidence? I know we've talked about a bit of this, but you know, that that's really important, our memory and and of course, creativity we've talked about, but also self-confidence. I think that's a biggie for a lot of us growing up and even into our adult years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was uh, working at Lego uh, doing prescription for play, I worked very closely with the Lego foundation, uh, which is kind of the sister company to the Lego group. Um, The Lego foundation is a nonprofit that uh, does a lot of research in play in five different areas. I think social, emotional, cognitive, um, and, uh, I, th- I think fine motor was one of them. I, I might've missed one, but th- there's a lot of great research around that. Uh, and it's definitely interesting to, to take a look at all the metrics of, of the benefits of play and to take that measured approach. But I think it's also a very intuitive thing to say, you know, does it make sense that the more opportunities for play that we give our kids and ourselves, that that's going to lead to a positive experience. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the more stories and games that we uh, expose to our kids, the more practice they're going to get. And so it's really just a matter of, of intuition and, and natural progression to say, you know, the more that we uh, make available and the more time that we spend and the more repetition we have, the more practice we're going to be giving our kids. And that's really what's going to lead to that uh, happier, um, you know, well-adjusted and, and you know, um, productive children, I think. Mm-hmm. I know here in um, Nova Scotia, the kids are out like they're, I don't know how much they're on computers, but they're, they're out on the lake, they're swimming, they're walking, people walk here a lot, you know, they're biking, they're really out while we're in the country, they're very outdoor kids. And you look at that, or I look at that, my husband, and I look at that and think, wow, that's a really good way to bring up your children um, to be connected to nature also and, and movement and not being, you know, sitting down at a computer all the time for sure. How can play become the core of observing? You talk about this and understanding the world. That's a bigger picture vision. (laughs) So how how we observe through play and also this, how it helps us understand the world more if we incorporate more play into our lives. 
Yeah, I think uh, for me, play uh, comes down to a couple of elements, one of which uh, that I think is most important is curiosity. Mm. And curiosity, uh, I define it as just like a hunger or a desire to, to observe uh, and to understand what's going on and, and to really dissect it. And I think this can be manifested in different ways. My nine-year-old, for example, is a, an engineering mind. You know, he sees you know, a machine or um, something. And he wants to understand how it works and kind of what's on the inside. And a lot of times, you know, if we're done with something, he'll want to take it apart. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's that observation and curiosity that um, that drives him because then he can figure out how to, you know, put it back together, so to speak, and how to put it back together in a different way. Or you can also observe uh, a lot of times play uh, an observation shows you what's not working or what can be done better. And it's that inquiry that gets you going on the process of improvement. If you're not aware or observing the way that something is not optimized or something that's not functioning properly, you're not going to take the steps uh, necessary to improve upon that process. And so that curiosity is really what drives uh, improvement, which both on a personal scale and and, uh, kind of like a macro scale with society, that's how I think we progress and make the world better because, you know, there's so many things going on right now that, and so many problems in the world that uh, could be benefited from just an inquisitive mind and the uh, identification of what needs to improve and, and to take that journey uh, in order to make those improvements. That's beautifully said, you know, and, and yes, I know there's a lot happening in the States right now too. So versus Canada, but uh, well, not versus different in Canada than, than, than the States, but and again, we have a lot of friends in the States, but that that taking that way of looking at something for for me, this shows about the greater good of humanity um, and Mother Earth. So it's about lifting our consciousness. So that expansion there of opening up to possibilities when you become curious, you open it's, not, it's back to the improv again, Drew, where it's not a shutdown. It's a yes. And it's being curious about something opens your brain up to those you know infinite possibilities of how could we work with this for the greater good. Right. And I think that takes us back to the difference between unstructured and and structured Mm -hmm. play. I think unstructured uh, play for me is more in the imagination and the wonder. Uh, There's there's a nice framework, uh, an author named Natalie Nixon that I like, where she uh, talks about creativity is the fusion of uh, wonder and rigor. And so unstructured play, I think, uh, leans more towards the wonder of, you know, taking a look at the, the invisible or the imaginated, uh, the imagined. And then the structured play is more of the rigor of, you know, how does this actually uh, come into reality? How does this become something that is tangible? And it's the, the merger of the wonder and the rigor where I think that the power really comes Wow. You have a lot of great information. I love how you say it. I love how you explain this stuff. It's just, it's, um, I'm listening to you very, very clearly. Well, what's happening today in the early education? Is it, is it, are people incorporating all this that you're saying right now? Do you see it improving? Are people, the educators that are working with children, is it, is that better now? And they're teaching the creative process to kids more? 
I hope so. I, mm-hmm. I see examples of it, um, you know, through Tony's for Teachers, our education initiative. You know, I go to different teacher conferences. I have a lot of conversations with teachers and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, not going to lie. I think a lot of things are broken right now. I, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of um, school systems uh, and a lot of districts, a lot of teachers that are overworked, underpaid, mm-hmm. understaffed underdeveloped. And so I, I see a lot of like opportunity, I guess you could say. Um, that's not to say that we don't have really great people doing the work. There's there's so many brilliant minds and so many um, just caring professionals of, of people who are doing their best. And, and we see some bright spots in that regard, some different schools, different companies um, that are aiding to the conversation. But I think there's always a use for more and there's always just a need to continually improve because a lot of things are really strained right now. And I I think COVID has also uh, done a number on that as well, just in terms of uh, burnout and, uh, and, you know, just systems, you know, kind of, uh, hanging by a thread or running on fumes. Um, but, uh, I'm optimistic that, you know, things are improving for the better and that we can give our kids the tools that they need, um, to grow into the next generation of problem solvers, uh, to continue to improve uh, society as a whole. That's a beautiful vision. So what's, what's next on the agenda for your, as you continue on your journey, is it this area that you just talked about, or do you have some big, like, let's say five years from now, what, what do you want to see sort of unfold and what are you, what are you working on, on the sidelines? I know you're very busy on the front lines <laughs> that, that, you know, where are you going? What's next for dirt? What's next for me? Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, I, I went to business school. I started out as a beauty marketer. Uh, I was working on some big, you know, billion dollar brands at P&G mm-hmm. uh, and P&G is a great company. I, I learned a lot there. I have great memories there, but, you know, at some point I, I didn't really want to spend my career selling mascara and selling, you know, lotion. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that I felt like I had uh, a bigger opportunity to make an impact. And, mm-hmm. and I have been able to find that uh, uh, in the toy industry, uh, first with Lego and now with Tony's. Uh, and I think it was through, you know, starting prescription for play and seeing that response and, and now working with Tony's for teachers. Uh, I started to think of myself less as a marketer and more as just an advocate for childhood. Uh, and that's become my main thesis is that number one, childhood matters. Uh, the, the experiences that we give our children do matter. Uh, they do uh, accumulate a- into adolescence and, and adults. And, and the tools that we give our kids uh, matter in such that the better tools that we give are going to lead to, to better you know, children and, and better, more capable children, I should say, and more inspired children. And so right now I'm still working at Tony's. I still, you know, my title is marketing director. I'm trying to get Tony boxes in every household and classroom in America, but bigger than that, whether I'm working at Tony's or or doing something else, I think my mission as I have found it is to improve the childhood experience. And that's what I endeavor to do. I love that. I would love you to share, as we come to the close of our beautiful, heartfelt conversation with so much knowledge and passion that you've shared, I really appreciate that. The special offer and the gift that you're giving today, and please note all the links to connect with Drew to collaborate in in whatever way and to help him with his advocacy. And the special offering gift will be below in the show notes. If you can share that, Drew, that would be wonderful. 
Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear from any of your listeners who are interested in the topics that we've discussed today. You can uh, reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn or email. Um, and uh, in terms of anybody who's interested in Tony specifically, um, we are uh, in several different countries, including the U.S. Unfortunately, we haven't quite made our way to Canada, although that's coming soon. So <laughs> um, for your Canadian listeners, uh, I apologize and, and uh, ask you to hang tight for just a little bit. But uh, for American listeners, uh, if you're interested in purchasing a Tony box, uh, you can find that at Tony's.com. It's T-O-N-I-E-S.com. Uh, if you put in Tony podcast, one word, T-O-N-I-E podcast, uh, that's going to give you 15% off uh, purchase of a Tony box. Um, we're also available at Target, Barnes & Noble, Pottery Barn Kids, Amazon. Um, but uh, if you want that discount, uh, that's going to be at Tony's.com uh, with offer code Tony podcast. And also for one special listener, uh, I wanted to just do a Tony box giveaway. So uh, I will leave that up to you in terms of of how you select that. Uh, I can fulfill that uh, directly, but uh, for one listener, we're going to to give uh, a free Tony box. Great. I think you were encouraging people to come on over to the site after they listen to it and, you know, leave a rating, leave a comment so we can really understand what they took away their aha moments from our call and our talk today. And also if they want to hear more about things like this for their children and insights, that that would be wonderful. Drew, thank you so much from sharing from your heart and soul, your wisdom on the power of storytelling and play. Namaste. Thank you, Moira. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.